You are listening to the News Project in studio. Brought to you by GNAT TV. Hello, and welcome back to another edition of GNAT TV's In Depth Series. I'm Andrew McKeever, the news director at GNAT TV's News Project. It's a pleasure to have you with us today on Thursday, July 27th. It's also a great pleasure to be joined in our studio today by Mike Pichak, who is the state treasurer. Uh, Mr. Pichak previously served six years as the commissioner of the Vermont Department of, uh, of Financial Regulation, where he was appointed in 2016 by then-Governor Peter Shumlin and then reappointed in 2017 by uh, Governor Phil Scott. And he was elected to the post of state treasurer last November and inaugurated as the state's 31st state treasurer this past January. Mr. Pichak, welcome to Jeanette and the News Project. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you down here. Uh, so much to talk about. Um, and I definitely want to talk a little bit about the economic fallout of the recent flooding and weather events uh, that have impacted the state, uh, not only up north, but also down here in, in, in the south, southern part of the state. But before uh, we get to that, uh, I can't help but uh, think back to uh, three or so years ago. Uh, the COVID pandemic started. A lot of Vermonters got to meet you, I think, when you were sort of the one of the first people on the governor's uh, uh, COVID pandemic team that had, at the beginning, I think three times a week, a press conference, and then that got reduced down to two, and then I guess one once a week. But uh, many people will probably remember meeting uh, Mike Pichak when he was giving the financial modeling report, I believe it was. Let's take a look. As in previous briefings, I will provide an overview of the developments from the past week and then touch on a look forward. Overall, the news continues to be good. Vermont's actual experience continues to trend better than even our best case forecasts. So that must have been an interesting uh, period. I, I mean, what was it like uh, being one of the lead off uh, people to give those reports uh, back in that time yeah. three plus years ago? Well, you know, if you remember COVID, I mean, in February and March of 2020, it was a really unsettled time uh, in many ways. We, we didn't really know what the impact was going to be. There had been uh, concerns about pandemics previously that didn't materialize, you know, to changing the way that we all live and work and changing the, the you know, the face of the planet. But this one did do that. And as that reality settled in, you know, I think it became really surreal for, for everyone that lived through it. When you were working on it, um, originally, you know, the, for the first couple of weeks, I was really working on it relative to the Department of Financial Regulation, making sure we had policies in place to cover testing, to cover treatment, uh, things like that on the insurance side. But when you really got in the middle of working on it, um, you kind of, in some ways, it almost seemed like a benefit in retrospect because you were so focused on the problem and making it day by day by day that you didn't have a lot of time to worry and think about you know what the broader impact was on yourself or your family or your community like you were just really trying to solve the challenge that was in front of you you know that particular hour uh, or that particular day and i don't know if you remember those early days but they had the, the federal government had the white house had something called 15 days to slow the spread and oh yeah <laughs> So 15 days to slow the spread, and I remember we all got behind it and flattened the curve, and we were projecting, you know, how that would benefit if we all, you know, and I remember, you know, just being so focused on that work, and then we got to day 12 or 13, and I started to think, you know, what's going to be different on day 16 than right now on day 13, and, and then that was my realization that the sprint that we were in 
was going to be a marathon, right? That we were going to be in it for a long time. Mm -hmm. So um, again, it was it was really an honor to be able to work on on something like that, to be trusted, to be able to you know provide for Vermonters and hopefully give them useful information that they could um, take and make their decisions about how they were going to live their lives, how they were going to keep their families safe, how they're going to keep their businesses open and their businesses safe. So we took it really seriously. We wanted to make sure we had a good, we, you know, even though we were in a studio and we didn't see the Vermonters on the other side of the camera, we wanted to have a relationship with them and make sure they trusted us and that they, you know, could understand the information that we were providing and that it was actionable, that they could, you know, take that information and then act on it. And Governor set the good tone by, you know, really deferring to so many people on his leadership team uh, by keeping a calm and steady approach to the entire crises. Um, so it was a really, um, you know, challenging experience. We had to work a lot. <laughs> we had to do a lot of things that we weren't anticipating doing in terms of learning about pandemics and modeling and, and all these assumptions that go into trying to understand the trends and the trajectories and all of that. But, um, you know, but it was really at the end of the day an honor to be able to serve Vermont in that way. Well, it must have been fascinating. And I, I was one of those people watching those uh, back then, uh, just about every time you were on there, uh, again, three or four, three times a week and twice a week. And uh, it was must-see TV for sure. Uh, so um, that all seems like such a long time ago now. <laughs> but I, I, I guess I just wondered, uh, before we move on to uh, our current situation here and, and, and what you're doing as uh, Treasury Secretary, um, I wondered, you know, one of the things that has seemed to have been an, a talking point anyway uh, has been the state got, what, close to $1 billion, if I remember correctly, in federal assistance in one way or another. And uh, I know there's been a lot of concern about, well, how would we spend that wisely and how would it be invested? And it was going to be one-time money. It, couldn't, it wasn't going to be an ongoing thing. Were you ever concerned that the state was going to not invest that money wisely, or 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 do you feel like uh, it wasn't like we kind of got hooked on this federal revenue right. that was coming in and figured, oh well, it's, there's always going to be money to pay for this program or that program? And yeah, really. well, you know, the so the, there were there were various federal monies that came to Vermont, and there was initially a billion dollars, and then I believe it was 1.25 billion dollars, and if you add up the monies that went to state government, to municipal governments, to businesses, through the PPP program, through individuals, Vermont as a state got about $10 billion of federal aid during that whole time period. So it doesn't all go to the state government, but sort of in terms of its impact on Vermonters and its economy, it was a huge, huge impact. Um, so I do think the governor set out a really solid priority list in terms of making sure the COVID money was spent on one-time type investments. So broadband is an example of that, housing is an example of that. Even some of the resiliency work that they're doing um, on climate and uh, you know trying to make our, our community stronger in, in the face of climate change, uh, some of those priorities uh, you know, I think also bore out in terms of being the right place to, to put the money. Um, so I know there were, there, and there still is concern about what will happen when the end of this money is over, because there's still, you know, billions of dollars that has not yet fully been felt in Vermont, uh, because either people are holding that money in their bank account, you know, they got PPP loans or they got other benefits, but they haven't spent it or put it into the economy yet. The state of Vermont still has money that we haven't spent yet that's sitting in our bank account. 
uh, that uh, is relating back to COVID aid. There are things like the transportation bill and the IRA, where there's still uh, hundreds of millions of dollars that will come to Vermont. The broadband bill that was just announced, $229 million coming to Vermont, um, if we can match that money. So there's still a lot of federal money out there that's making its way through the system to be impacted in our economy and is making its way through the system to come to Vermont as well. So I think we will, if we continue to make wise investments, those are things that will pay off for us for, for decades to come. And I think we are on the right track uh, for a lot of that. When we look at our own revenues for a state, you know, we really look different from the pre-pandemic era to this post-pandemic era. You know, pre-pandemic, we were so worried about our demographics. You know, we were getting older as a state. Um, our workforce was shrinking. Um, some areas of our state had some good vitality, but not a lot of corners of our state. And post-pandemic, um, the advent of remote work and the ability for you to live and work in different geographic areas. Um, I think the way Vermont handled the pandemic, the, the low case counts that we had, um, there's been this real demand to move to Vermont. I know you feel it here in the Manchester area, same in all of Southern Vermont and in Burlington and almost anywhere in the state. You talk to realtors, you talk to bankers, you talk to town clerks and they say, you know, we have uh, every home that we had listed it's gone in a nanosecond, purchased by somebody from out of state who paid in cash, who you know paid more than the listing price, and so on and so forth. Never made a direct personal visit, just <laughs> yeah. watched a video of the home. So yeah. you know, there's a positive side of that. You see our personal income tax numbers really rise over the last three or four years, like hundreds of millions of dollars more every year that we're collecting than prior to the pandemic. Um, the downside is the limitation on housing. It's really stressing everyone, middle class families, people on the edges that are vulnerable are pushed into homelessness. Um, businesses they're trying to hire and recruit and grow can't do that because their employees can't find housing. Uh, even teachers and firefighters and municipal workers, you know, they, they are unable to hire these openings that they have because folks can't find housing in the community that they're taking a job in. So it's really put a lot of pressure on the housing market. But fundamentally, where we're getting our tax revenue from is more diverse than it was prior to the pandemic. There's just more high net worth individuals with strong, good jobs in Vermont. It's contributing to strong tax revenues. And I think that will persist. But the thing that remains our number one issue is the lack of, of housing uh, throughout many of our communities in our state. Well, how do you think we're going to fix that. I mean, I know you recently hosted a forum on yeah. on the subject. Uh, I mean, it, it, it works at so many different levels. On, on the one hand, you have uh, our homeless population. We're one of the highest per capita yeah. states in terms of homeless uh, folks, and, and I'm sure the recent flooding uh, yes. did nothing but, you know, uh, make that even worse. And then you have the, uh, the missing middle, yeah. uh, you know, the workforce housing situation. Uh, and certainly, uh, as you said, right around here, it's there is no inventory, right? You know, rental or otherwise. And uh, how do we get out of that? Yeah, no, it's a, it, it's a challenge because this issue didn't come overnight. Like it has been um, sort of slowly growing over decades as our population has grown, and as our housing stock has not sort of kept up with that population growth. We've grown over 20% as a population from the 1980s, even though we don't think of Vermont as being a place that has dramatic <laughs> population growth, we are still growing. 
and our home sizes have been getting smaller. So we used to have more people living in a home, whether that was um, because people were getting married and now maybe they're not getting married as early in their lives or at all. Uh, people were having families and maybe they're intergenerational uh, situ living situations that aren't happening now. So even with the same population, we require more housing, which is putting pressure uh, on our housing stock. So the answer long term, you know, is to build more housing in our population centers, you know, like Burlington, like Winooski where I live, South Burlington, Brattleboro where I grew up, Rutland. You know, we need more multifamily housing. We need to be able to um, have buildings that, you know, we build up so that we have a denser downtown. Um, that will help us in a whole variety of ways. It's less expensive to build in downtowns and city centers. There's infrastructure there to be able to build. Uh, it's less, uh, it takes less resources on policing and firefighting uh, and things of that nature. So it's less expensive. It's also better for the economy for us to be, or better for the environment rather, for us to be living closer to where we work and where we socialize uh, so that we can walk more often and take our cars less often. So there's a whole, um, I think the answer is really clear in terms of how we get there um, and what that vision looks like. But then thinking about what are the steps that are necessary, a big step was certainly the reforms around housing that the legislature made last year in the bill called S-100 that basically eliminated single-family zoning in Vermont. We're one of three states that has taken this step to try to expand our housing stock uh, so individuals can turn their big old Victorian homes into a multifamily apartment setting, for example. Uh, so I think that's one of the keys to, to trying to add units in Vermont. Uh, we also have to support affordable housing. We have to support workforce housing as well. Uh, we have a program called 10% in Vermont in the Treasurer's Office. We expanded that program in January uh, to make $85 million available for economic development. And the thing that we focused on as a top priority was using that $85 million to support new housing because we saw it as the number one economic issue uh, in our state. It's also one of the big social issues in our state because the lack of housing and the cost of housing is directly contributing to the increase that we're seeing for those that are experiencing homelessness. Um, that $85 million, we put it on pause as the flooding hit. We were about to approve a significant portion of housing on uh, July 12th, which was the day after the flooding. We put it on pause to sort of evaluate if those resources need to be else used elsewhere. But we want to get back to making those important long-term investments in housing. So. So it's making sure the state is supporting it financially, making sure we have the right regulatory environment so that the private sector can build and so that even these affordable housing projects can be built in a timely manner. Uh, there might be more regulatory reform that's necessary around Act 250. I know the legislature will have that on its agenda next year. But I think we're moving in the right direction in terms of financial support and in terms of the right regulatory environment to support more housing in our village centers and our, in our city centers. Well, let's talk a little bit about that flooding uh, situation that uh, we've been working through for the past couple of weeks. Um, I can't help but think that this is going to have a very large economic impact on the state. I mean, this the timing, I think, for a lot of businesses couldn't have been worse. I mean, this is the summer season. This is when a lot of, uh, a lot of small independent businesses in particular, uh, this is when they make their money. Uh, in addition to the fall foliage season in October, but uh, this time of year is, is really critical. 
a lot of businesses that are operating on pretty thin margins to start with under the best of circumstances. Um, do you think this is going to really impact like tax collections, sales and use tax, and uh, income tax for that matter? Um, how do you see the economics of this playing out going forward? Yeah, well, I mean, the one thing that I do worry about is prior to this flooding, we had economic disparities between Chittenden County and a lot of other counties in our state. This flooding largely impacted areas outside of Chittenden County, you know, Hardwick and Johnson, Montpelier, Barrie, down here in southern Vermont. So those disparities that existed prior to the flooding, um, I think are going to get exacerbated by this r recent natural disaster. Chittenden County is, you know, didn't miss a beat. Its economy continues to push forward. It didn't have the significant kind of damage that a place like Montpelier did or Barrie did. But those places that did experience that kind of damage, they're really hurting. I mean, they they are um, devastated. Their downtowns are devastated. And it's going to take them a long time to build back. So I worry about that growing, you know, that disparity that existed previously that we were all trying to, you know, close and make sure that the Vermont economy was successful everywhere. It's only going to be um, made worse by the flooding. So I worry about that. In terms of the, you know, in terms of the impact, you know, Chittenden County, you know, was the economic engine for the state. It was largely unimpacted. I mentioned a lot of people that move here, uh, have moved here during the um, pandemic and afterward that have remote jobs. You know, they're largely going to be unimpacted in terms of their daily lives. So those kind of tax revenues will continue, hopefully, to come in unimpacted. Um, but certainly, those local communities are going to see tremendous economic devastation. Um, we are in a really strong position as a state from a financial standpoint, so I think we can weather that. Um, but we really need to focus on how we're going to best support those communities because those individual communities were really hit hard and um, we'll have a long road ahead of them, not just a couple of months, not, you know, not six months, it's, it's a year, multiple years in terms of where they're going to be back to, to what they were on June 30th. So the state has the financial resources to kind of uh, help those businesses and homeowners and other folks who were impacted you know, get back on their feet. It may take a while, but basically the money is there to kind of yeah. at least assist that process along. Yeah, I mean, there are, you know, there are a couple of things that are happening right now. One is philanthropic endeavors, the, the Vermont uh, Main Street Flood Recovery Fund, the Vermont Community Foundation has a flood uh, recovery fund as well. There are local funds that are popping up in places like Montpelier and Ludlow. So that's sort of the initial reaction is to try to get support to those small businesses. FEMA is working quickly to get that individual assistance to impacted business, uh, impacted uh, homeowners and renters uh, so that they can have uh, their, uh, you know, start to clean up and rebuild their homes. Um, the SBA has come in with loans and so there's a lot of federal and state programs that are sort of kicking into gear here as, long, as well as the philanthropic private efforts. So that gives us some time to evaluate and think what else do we need to do to help individuals and to help businesses and municipalities. So that's really what's happening now in Montpelier is what are the next steps over, you know, not these first few weeks, but these first few months and then into the years that follow uh, to make sure that we have the financial resources uh, to um, support a recovery. We have, as a state right now, um, a significant cash position. Our rainy day funds are well positioned. You know, we're, we, we're well resourced from that standpoint, so that's, that's good news. 
um, but we have to make sure we um, make investments in those impacted communities that will not uh, be impacted again the next time we have a significant rainstorm either. So what I mean is we have to build back in a more resilient way uh, will be part of the discussion. Um, so, it, you know, that's tricky. Those conversations are tricky and they're going to take a while, but I know that uh, everyone in Montpelier is very focused on making sure we help all the corners of the state that were impacted. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's been a point I've been thinking about a lot the last couple of weeks is this whole building back better, uh, more resilient. And I guess w one of the interesting things I've, I've uh, at least read about anyway uh, from that we did seem to draw some good lessons from Irene yes. uh, 12 years ago that, uh, that when we rebuilt from then, there was some re more resiliency built in and that resiliency paid off this time around. So the lesson would seem to be again this time around continue to do that right. and, and even more so if possible. But that's going to cost money, right? It's going to cost more to, to rebuild a road resiliently right. uh, than just to replace it the way it was. Now, FEMA, now there is some federal money for that, like FEMA will uh, make a decision on individual homes about whether it's better to buy the home completely and, and have someone move to a different location because it's in a flood-prone area that will see repeated flooding. Same thing for some of the work that Vermont might do on its rebuilding that will get FEMA money to help with that resiliency or federal money to help with that resiliency. So there will be some federal money there, but it will require state resources too. And to your point, like if we're going to be proactive about it, like so there are parts of our state that were not impacted by this flooding but could easily be impacted by the next storm. Do we go and and make those bridges higher and stronger and better, or do we wait for the flood to, you know, impact them? And um, unfortunately, we've been kind of reactive in this space, right? And that's sort of, I think, government sometimes can operate that way, and maybe a little bit human nature. But you know, how can we try to get ahead of the next storm? So um, we have mobile home parks that are not in flood-prone areas. We have vulnerable bridges that are not going to get washed out and I think those are the real hard conversations because those come with state mm. resources they don't generally come with federal emergency aid because you're trying to get ahead of the problem and probably high price tags too yeah right exactly <laughs> people are going to say what are we spending our money on that <laughs> um, let me just pivot to uh, some an older question uh, that I was a big deal it seemed like a year or two ago I haven't heard as much about it lately uh, so maybe I guess that's good news uh, the whole state pensions question, that, that was a big preoccupation uh, for a lot of lawmakers. I know uh, how, do we, how do we adequately fund uh, state workers and teachers and so forth. Uh, can you bring us up to speed on that? Are we, did, did it all work out or uh, is that still a, an ongoing problem? Yeah, so there, you know, a couple of years ago, and this was all happening during the pandemic, so right. um, you know, it, was a, it was a real challenge for teachers and state employees because they were doing some of the most um, significant and hardest work of their careers and then this pension conversation was happening at the same time. So that was just a really challenging you know, situation for, for you know, policymakers for the individuals that were impacted by the pension. But you know, I did serve on the pension task force that was established by the legislature and our task was to try to find ways to shore up the system. Um, it meant everything generally was on the table but I think we all acknowledged that um, we wanted to eliminate to the best we could benefit changes that were going to impact certainly people in retirement, people close to retirement, and as best you could people that were in the system broadly. Um, and with that sort of framework, we did come up with some solutions that changed the benefit structure, you know, so that there was a reduction in benefits, 
changed the contribution amount so that individuals contributed more to the system and also had the state contribute a significant portion of one-time money from excess you know, revenues that we were experiencing. And when you put all of those things in totality, they're still playing out. But for the first time in a while, you are seeing a consistent trend upward in the funding ratio. So basically, how much um, is it expected for you to cost and pay for everyone that's in the system and retired? And then how much money do you have currently to meet all of those obligations? And that's the unfunded balance. We don't have enough right now to meet all of those obligations. But the percentage of money that we have to meet those obligations continues to tick up, and that's what you want to see. You want to see that funding ratio get higher and higher into the 70s, into the 80s, closing in on you know 100% funded. So for the state employees, we're at about 69% funded. That's up from in the mid-60s to low-60s just a couple of years ago. So again, that's the right trajectory that you want to see. Same thing with the teachers. They were close to 50% funded, and they're starting to tick up into the mid to high 50s. So uh, I guess the point is that um, there is a plan to pay those down uh, by 2038. There is a plan to pay down the healthcare unfunded obligations too by 2048. And those trajectories are looking favorable. So it requires a tremendous amount of money every single year that the state contributes uh, to making up for those past you know, underfunding or past you know, assumptions that didn't turn out to be as, as they were rosier than you know than what reality was, but we are making good progress on it. And um, I think if you are a current state employee, if you're a retired state employee or teacher or municipal worker, you can have some uh, assurance that your pension is strong and is going to be there for you. Well, uh, that's that's good news for all those folks, as I know it certainly was a very hot button issue there for a while. Uh, kind of on a related note, I guess I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about uh, Vermont Saves. That's a public retirement plan for Vermonters. Uh, What's that all about? Yeah, so we're, we are excited about Vermont Saves. We uh, introduced it this legislative session. Um, you know, state employees and teachers have pensions. A lot of individuals in the corporate world have 401ks. But there are a lot of people, and about 88,000 to 100,000 Vermonters, who don't have any retirement through their workplace. So what we were trying to focus on and the problem we were trying to solve were for those workers, those 88,000 to 100,000 workers in the Vermont economy, who have no access to retirement. The data will show that if you don't have access to retirement, you don't save for retirement. 95% uh, of people who don't have access to retirement through their workplace don't save a penny for retirement. So as they're getting older and further along in their careers, they're not building that nest egg that will help them have a dignified and secure retirement. Many of them, decades down the road, will say, boy, I wish I had started earlier. Uh, I just didn't know where to turn. I meant to do this five years ago. So this is trying to make it really easy for individuals to save. Um, businesses that don't offer a pension or a 401k will be required to sign up for Vermont Saves. There's no cost to the business and there's no ongoing cost to taxpayers either. But the business does have to sign up. It has to put their employees into the system. And then the employees have the opportunity to opt out if they would not like to participate. But otherwise, they're automatically enrolled after about a 30-day period into the program, which will automatically take out 5% of their paycheck and put it into a Roth IRA. So the great thing about that structure is it's automatic, you know, sort of set it and forget it. Those, that 5% contribution ratchets up to 6%, then 7%, and then maxes out at 8%. And 
it's a Roth IRA, so if you run into a situation down the road where you need your money because you have a car that broke down or something you have to repair with your house, you can take the money out without penalty and without tax as long as it's the, as it's the principal that you put in. Any investment return has to stay in the Roth IRA until you get to a certain age. So it's a really flexible plan. Um, it's worked really well in about four or five other states that have implemented it. So we have a path to follow in terms of implementation. Uh, we're currently looking for an executive director for the program, uh, but hope to have it set up and running by July of 2025. So we really think um, it will have a big impact. We call it a program that will have a big impact without a big price tag uh, because there's no ongoing cost to taxpayers and there's no ongoing cost to the businesses that participate either. Well, speaking as someone who definitely should have been putting some more money into a <laughs> retirement account at an earlier point, uh, that sounds like a great idea. And I think the, the idea of uh, once you've opted in or you're in, uh, that makes it a lot easier, I think, for people when they, when they you know, they're automatically enrolled as opposed to exactly. make a phone call or send a... a yeah, because most people want to be enrolled. It's just that inertia. Yeah. Like if inertia, if you're not automatically enrolled, the inertia is you don't enroll. Yep. If you are automatically enrolled, the inertia you're is in, automatically... Yeah. All of a sudden, you're not missing that 5% of your salary exactly or whatever. Right. It's just going someplace. Well, uh, lots more we could talk about, but I, the clock is saying we're, we're just about done here. But I, I just wanted to thank you again, uh, Mike Petrak, for being with us, uh, taking the time to come down and uh, share your views on all this. And uh, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure to be with you. And thanks to all of you who've been with us. Hope you found our program interesting. And, well, we'll see you again the next time. Meanwhile, take care. Thank you for listening local. For more local content, visit gnat.tv.